Hello, everyone, and we're back here with episode two of the Amazing Podcast. Episode one was about parenting, um, the child phase, kids. Uh, the second episode is going to be about the marriage phase and what it's like to uh, to parent when you reach the age where your children start getting married and what it's like to starting to include in-law children in your family. Uh, and that will be the main focus of this episode. So uh, with that, I'm going to already start off with my first question here, Oma, and that is that, like I just mentioned in the first episode, we talked about what parenting is like for kids primarily and sort of that, that young phase of, of childhood and everything that comes around that. Um, and my question is, is that what, in your opinion, is the main difference between parenting children who are in the kids phase and are on the younger end of the scale, as opposed to raising, uh, to raising children when they're a little bit older and a little more into adulthood as they start nearing uh, the marriage phase? Um, I'm not sure I thought about the changes in my in parenting between the kids' early years and their later years, I think you adapt to circumstances around you. So perhaps the conversation changes or the content of the conversation changes, but I think the relationship is still the same. So first of all, I think it's about being relevant, which I keep coming back to, but I think it's really true. You're relevant when the kids are little because, you know, the food's on time and you change the diapers and you go to the park and you, I don't know, whatever it is that you do. And you try to stay relevant as kids. You, you try to stay the same relevant parent that you always were and you adapt to new circumstances. Like I said, you make the best decisions you can depending on what the circumstances are at that time. So you're not talking about curfews when your kids are four. But, and the truth is, I don't think I ever used the word curfew. I don't remember, you have to ask the kids. But we talked, I don't think, it, it, I don't think we ever had kids that pushed the limits to such an extent. So when the kids got older, we adapted, and I guess they adapted to the next stage, and what they needed from us or what they expected us to be or what they wanted us to be or what we thought our role was was kind of the same. We just kind of moved along. So, and maybe we gave the kids enough leeway that they weren't looking to push the envelope in any which direction so, so much. Um, I don't know, but if I think about it, maybe, maybe that's true. So, Oma, you talked about relevance now and maintaining relevance towards your children. Um, I'd like to ask you maybe to try and think of an example or a situation where it could be different to maintain relevance towards little kids or children as opposed to uh, to being relevant to children that are older. Because my guess is, and I'd be interested to hear your answer, that knowing how to be relevant to children during different stages of life is a complicated thing to do. I don't know if complicated is the word that I would use. There's no question that Daddy or Poppy and I talked about different issues with different kids um, all along the timeline of growing up. So the conversation changes. Uh, relevant that you're able to have a conversation about something that is important 
or meaningful to that kid at that stage, and you're still someone that can have the conversation about it and not say, I know nothing about it. All I knew was how to change diapers and going to university or um, dating or uh, other choices that we wouldn't be able to talk about it. And I also think that we didn't always wait for the kids to bring stuff up. We sometimes managed to figure out how to bring it up if it was something we wanted to have a conversation about. And I think maybe that's it with older kids. Waiting them out, I never really thought about it this way, but maybe waiting them out is not something we did. Sometimes we did. We waited for it to come out, but if it didn't, I think it's like fools walk in where angels fear to tread. So take out fools, or sometimes we are, uh, for parents, you know, walk in where angels fear to tread. And I think not being afraid, not being afraid of your kids and not being afraid to hear what they have to say, even though sometimes you really don't want to, is, is maybe part of it. So, Oma, you just mentioned that part of staying relevant to, you know, different children at different times is knowing how to maintain topics of conversation depending on where they are in life. Would you say about yourself or about popular, about the two of you um, as parents that there were certain stages of life that it was easier for you to connect your children or have meaningful conversations with them? Like, for example, do you think that it was easier for you to have good connection and good conversations with your children who were in their older teens as opposed to children who were, you know, in, you six and seven, first and second grade. I don't think as a parent I differentiated between the stages. First of all, seven kids spanning 18 years. So I was speaking to one-year-olds when I was also speaking to 18-year-olds or 19-year-olds. And I don't think I the switch changed in my head. Conversation might have changed. Reactions might have changed. But I don't think the parent, that there was a switch and I think maybe that's it. I was parenting young, middle, and older, or you know, at the same time. Uh, uh, absolutely not. I really, I, I love. I liked being pregnant. I thought being pregnant was really nice. I didn't really like being early pregnant. That's for sure. But I liked being pregnant. Maybe the birth itself wasn't so much fun for me. But I, I liked having children. Look at me. I kept on going back. Um, I even fought the doctor to go back. And I, I really liked every stage. I really did. You know, sometimes they're more trying in the middle of the night. And who, you know, not sure how many people you need to sleep in a bed with. But I, 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 really, li- I really liked all the different stages. And I didn't mind in the morning having to talk to somebody about wearing shoes and not going out in socks and having a discussion about breakfast and then discussing, uh, you know, some more adult thing, like what barbecue food to have late at night when people came home from school. No, I don't think I really saw myself or see myself. I don't even see myself different uh, as a grandparent. I kind of, I'm that same person for good for bad and for ugly, uh, but I still think I'm the same person. 
even when I talk to big kid, I'm baking cookies at the same time, or I can be helping somebody with a um, that you know a presentation, or I can all at the same time. I don't think so. I don't. I don't, I don't relate to that different kind of parent, or not liking a certain stage of parenting. I think that's why being a parent full-time and at home never felt like I was compromising. I didn't feel like a shut-in. I just kind of sometimes like to do other things, but in parallel. But no, no, I don't relate to that. To be honest, I really did not love or like playing games. I played cards definitely played cards. I played war. I played, um, I think, I forgot the one. Um, stop a minute. What's it called? I, I, I like playing cards. I mean, I played cards. I played war. I played go fish. I played spit. I played, I played a lot of cards. Uh, but Poppy was the one, or Daddy was the one who played the games. He used to, he had much more patience, Parcheesi, and I don't know all the other games, but he, he was the one who played the games. Um, so if I talk about the stage of life, um, I played Spit at different stages of life with different kids. Um, I also sometimes played Chamesh Avanim, I didn't mind that, but games, board games, not for me. Oma, in the last episode, you you talked about the importance of of giving your children a certain amount of of backbone or confidence, and and I think one of the um, a certain act that takes a lot of confidence is is knowing that you're ready to get married or or you know being confident in your decision that you've chosen the right spouse. When looking across your seven children, uh, they all got married at the younger age of the scale. Um, I don't think any of them got married after the age of 24, if I'm not mistaken. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and and being able to make such a big decision at such a young age uh, demands a, a certain amount of confidence. And my next question is, is why why do you think that most of your children got married at the younger age of the of the scale? And I'd like you to answer it um, sort of in, in two layers. The first layer is that what do you think about your children got them to get married at a younger age? And number two is that what is your place as a parent when you look at your children and you see that they get that they get married or that they want to get married at the younger age of the scale. So some of my kids, who shall again remain nameless, said that one of the reasons they got married young was to get out of being at the Shabbat table with all the crazies that we had at that Shabbat table. So that would be one reason. But if I go back and I think, I mentioned that everybody has a job and a family. Parents have a job, kids have a job. And like I said at the time, kids' job is to go to school as much as they are going to school and then to you know be children. And then at one point, their job is to be more social and, and then to get married and or to find somebody. But kids need, I don't know if encouragement is the right word, or need to be ready. And so how do you get ready? So first of all, we used to use the Shabbat table, but in general, the kids kind of knew that those were different stages of life. And I think we encourage them to think about the social, 
girls, boys, that kind of stage. And that often happened at the table, not with the crazies, but when the crazies weren't there. When we would talk about so-and-so was getting married, so-and-so was dating, um, you know, uh, so-and-so asked us about our, our boys, so-and-so asked us about our girls. The conversation helped the kids ready them their heads for what that next stage of life was about. And I think part of a parent's job is to help their kids in their head get ready and not just talk about all the other aspects of the next stages of life in terms of finding yourself and individuating and all that kind of stuff, because I really think that the next stage of life should include somebody who will provide unconditional love to allow you to move forward. And so, you know, not it's not about 18, 19, 20, 22, 24. It's not, it's not about that, though it's also about that. It's about knowing that that's the next step and it's not just studying and it's not just dating and it's not just anything, but there is a time where you have to juggle all these different things at the same time, which probably gets you ready for the other kind of juggling you do a little bit later in life. So I'm not sure I completely answered the question that was posed, but there's another thing that I always thought about. The idea of getting married young um, to a good partner, a supportive partner, you have that unconditional love, and unconditional love allows you to risk. And being able to risk in other aspects of your life, and when you don't have a supportive partner, And supportive parents are good, too, but supportive partners are even better for for that. And and you tend to, you know, being able to risk about your education, about profession, even about trying different things when you know there's somebody there who's got your back is a big deal. And and, um, instead of being so self-focused on individuating... Um, risking is also probably to an extent finding yourself and individuating but I don't know somehow I see it differently and I see it as healthier so Omar you talked about how the the, the conversation or the topics, you know, around the social scene and around, you know, the, the boys from that family, the girls from your family, people were asking you about your kids, about your, you know, your sons and your daughters, etc. Um, so there, there's kind of this scene that goes around the dating era of your children. Um, and my question is, is that um, how, how as a parent, do you help your child make the decision of choosing, you know, the one? Because that's that's a really big leap of faith that you need to take as a child. And, you know, sometimes you lean on your parents to make that decision. But my question is that how, how as a parent, do you give your child that confidence or that strength or sort of what criteria are you looking for when helping your child to choose the one? So let's get the irony thing right out of the way right away. So the one... I mean, my children are probably lying on the floor now, rolling in laughter. So, of course, I only dated Daddy, never dated anybody else, 
fell in love with him when I was 14, and we were on that straight path till the end. Okay, now we took care of the irony part. Moving right along. The truth is what we used to say to the kids, you know, some, some of our children dated a lot of people. Okay, you guys, you can remain nameless too. And some of them dated few. And um, some, very, very, very few, maybe one. So what we used to say, if someone seemed like it was going well and it was good, that that person was a perfectly acceptable specimen, meaning that, you know, there might be more than one person that you could end up with, but you have to kind of say, this is really a good person, and I can go and build a life and and really make it happen with this person. So I guess to you, a bad term, that person is a perfectly acceptable specimen. And then you have to aggressively or assertively or, okay, kids, stop rolling on the floor laughing, um, move forward and allow it to happen. And I think the role that we played as parents is encouraging that. Now, what happens is, what do you do? You encourage it. But if it doesn't happen or your kid can't let it happen, and we had that experience as well, then it's clear that that person might appear like a perfectly acceptable specimen, but for whatever reason, they're not. They're not for your kid. And that's why you have to kind of pay attention. And it, you have to pay attention, you know, in each direction to encourage it or to, and to finally allow the pushback and say, okay, I thought it was a good idea, but clearly it's not for my kid. And I don't have a formula for that. You know, hopefully we did it right and, you know, we listened well enough and we didn't push, if it's a bad word, to we, we didn't over-encourage when it was clear that our kid wasn't interested or couldn't get it done with that person. And, and you know, knowing that or figuring that or sensing that is tricky. And you need a lot of muscle and siyata dishmaya. So thank you for that, Oma. And I purposely asked you that first part of the question, you know, to answer it from the perspective as a parent. You know, how as a parent do you help your child make that decision of you know choosing the one? And I appreciate your answer. Um, and the next question I want to ask you is that I want you to to change your focal point from being the parent helping your child um, as you know, as to you being the one making the decision, and you you mentioned the irony in the in your opener about um, about about your little story on the topic, um, and I'd like for you to answer the next question: Is that how how did you know that it was the one or sort of what are certain um, w- what are certain pieces of advice that you would give towards uh, helping individuals out there choose the one? Heck, I don't know. Um, if you're asking about Poppy, Daddy, and I, we started dating when we were 14. 
I don't know if I was smart enough or understanding enough that you go out with one guy and you just keep going. I, I, I don't really know the answer. Um, so I went out. In those days, you went out with other people or you went to camp and you met somebody else and suddenly you were dating somebody else. Maybe other people didn't. Maybe I had trouble. Okay, poppy daddy, get off the floor laughing. Some issues with decision-making. Decision-making is not my strong suit. And I kind of always told my kids that I hope they got their my better genes and not my bad genes. And thank God most of them did not get my genes on the decision-making. So that wasn't so easy for me. And so I guess I needed to confuse myself further and further and further. And maybe finally, I had a eureka moment that, first of all, I, clearly I didn't want to lose Daddy. As aggravated as I made him, and I aggravated him a lot, I always kind of, I guess, instinctively knew when to stop aggravating him so that he wouldn't leave me. And maybe that realization finally came through that I really didn't want him to leave me, and 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 he was the right one for me. And because I had trouble making decisions, I guess I could kept on confusing myself. I kept on adding to my layers of confusion. Honestly, I don't really know the answer. Um, this is one hypothesis. I never really articulated it this way. Maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe it just, maybe I had clarity. Maybe, thank God, God gave me clarity for about five seconds in my life. And so the decision, you know, wasn't hard. At the end, I proposed to, da to Daddy because he, he, he almost killed over. He was so surprised. So um, I don't know. I was very lucky that he hung in. Um, with me, and he continues to hang in with me. So, Oma, you just mentioned how getting married young allows you to take certain risks with with your spouse, and it gives you it gives you that backbone in order to take those risks. But you know, let me you know if if you're already talking about risks, then I'd like to maybe ask the reverse question, and that is that what are maybe some of the risks of of getting married young? Because risks can be interchanged with opportunities um, if they're materialized in the right way. But my question is that what you know what are some of the risks of getting married young that if they don't materialize in the, in the right way could uh, ultimately be more of a danger and a real risk than actually being a good opportunity. So I'm not sure I'm equipped to answer that question because every relationship is fraught with its own inherent risk. And you marry someone and you don't really know the person. You kind of know the part that you know. You don't know the part that you don't know. And you need mazel and you need two people working at it. Um, marriage just like parenting is a work in progress, marriage is a work in progress. And you don't get everything you thought you were gonna get, and you don't not get, and you get more than you did think, and, and, and I don't know. And sometimes marriages don't work out for a lot of good reasons. So I'm not really equipped to answer that, but to answer it as a parent, the marrying young thing, if you encourage your kids to marry young, you have to be there. You can't say, go get married young and have a nice day. And because 
they're young, they need support in all kinds of different ways. I mean, not just financial, but emotional, physical. You can't expect them to also get married young and also be in school and also make dinner every night and also do this and also, you know, do. they can't do the laundry. You have to be there to offer to help. Now, some kids get married and move, to, move away and you're not there to do physical. And you have to try to do it in different ways. But, you know, young marriage and early marriage is, is a work in progress. And I think you, you have to parent a little bit differently, but so in a supportive way that is global support. So, Oma, so you're, so you're saying that, that by encouraging your children to get married, you need to be there for support. It doesn't matter if that's financial support. It doesn't matter if that's emotional support. It doesn't matter if that's physical support. But you end up having you know, more of a, of a hands-on job if you're encouraging your children to get married. And, and it seems like, like you end up still having a long, you know, a long list of uh, parental obligations you need to do, um, even though you've sort of married them off. So my question is, is, you know, is it still worth it? Is it still worth encouraging your children to get married young, even if you still have that long list of burdens you need to take care of? Short answer to everything, for sure, yes. Longer answer. I don't think it's obligations. I don't think parenting is about obligations. Of course it is on a certain level, but it it is being normal and looking at a situation normally. You think marrying young or young on the young side is a better thing. So that that creates a circumstance or that creates situations that require, you know, additional other stuff. And so it's not about obligations. What are you going to do? You're going to tell kids, you know, I think marrying young is really great for you and then abdicate parenting. I don't believe in abdicating parenting on any level and, and abandoning kids when they get married. It's like a punishment. I don't think so. I just don't see it that way at all. So getting married young is not like, you know, the be-all and whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's a kivun. It doesn't work for everybody, but it is a kivun. Now, if you ask me when they get, kids are older, so I can't really answer that from experience. I can only answer it theoretically. But from the theoretical point of view, yes, if kids get married older, so they're more settled, they have a job, they kind of have come to themselves in in some aspects of their thinking. But I don't see it as a difference in terms of the role of parent. Because when you send somebody off, even if they're not even living at home anymore or anything like that, you're still sending them off to the next stage of life. And as a parent, you still want to ease them into whatever that next stage of life is. So they don't need this kind of help, so you help this way. But you still want to kind of be there and slide them in. So that's my answer to the um, older. And the getting married younger aside from the fact that I think it makes more sense. Also, just from the life cycle part of it, it seems to make sense to me. Get married younger, you have a little chance to 
you know, um, explore yourselves as a couple. You have a chance to, nothing is so pressured. You have children, the children have grandparents, the children can have great-grandparents. The whole kind of extended nuclear interaction just seems to me to the benefits of it far, far outweigh the negatives. So it just seems to make sense that there's the right time. Even in terms of a woman in a biological clock, why do you want to worry about that timing? It just, everything seems to be on a fundamental level um, making more sense to me. Oh, but we've been trying our best, and you've d- you've done very well up till now. Did not uh, mention any uh, any specifics when talking about your children, but there was one question I got from one of your granddaughters who wanted to ask some clarifying questions about a certain story involving her parents. And there's a certain story that goes around, and I'd like to hear this story from your perspective about a certain child of yours who you were trying to encourage to go out with some people, and you handed her a list of uh, potential suitors. And there were a certain number of people on that list. And on the last name on the list, there was a name, but it was marked out in a pen, meaning should not be uh, looked at. And uh, you're, you're, you're shaking your head, which means that maybe I don't have some of the details of the story wrong. We're about to hear in a second. I'd love to hear from your point of view what is the backstory or you know the behind-the-scenes story of, of what went on there and to just hear your perspective about that story in general. So to begin with, in answer to that granddaughter, um, it's apocryphal because it was never aligned through any any name, and and whoever may have said that was just kind of adding a little fuel to whatever fire they're trying to uh, build. So the story goes like this: there was a child who a daughter who dated quite a bit. And that child um, was going to be around for Pesach, clearly. And so, and that child was between dating, was not busy in quotations at that point. And so I worked diligently and called a lot of people and did all the things that, you know, my hishtadlot and got names of different guys that were available and might be uh, good to go out with. And that child did not feel like going out with anybody that I, we, I had dug up or something. And, on, and then I had gotten a call at the same time I was out there looking, somebody who I knew who suggested uh, someone who frankly did not sound, which goes to the fact that I don't know um, you know, I didn't. I did not have all the answers, and did not know exactly who was the right person for which child. It had to click for that child, who suggested someone that did not appear to me to kind of um, be somebody that that child would would like. In any event, that child I mentioned to that daughter that I had a number of people for her to go out with. 
And that daughter told me mm, she thought she was going to take time off from dating over that Pesach holiday. And I mentioned to that daughter, that's all very cute and everything, but that daughter was not taking time off from dating on my clock, um, but um, she could take time off from dating on her clock at another time. And so that daughter thought, how could I work this out that I get my cake, eat it, and still keep my mother off my back? So the daughter said, hmm, I'll go out with the least likely candidate so that that way, if I push it off for a few days, I can do a date. And then if I push it off again, I could maybe do a second date and then I can get out of um, going out and it'll be just fine. So that child said that's the one she's going to go out with. Um, her strategy in her head being intact, that she would be able to waltz through the holiday and not be stuck going out really, you know, with anybody that I had suggested or I had kind of uh, researched. Anyway, said gentleman came to the door with flowers and we didn't know that it was very likely and we figured, okay, just like she had anticipated, this is going to be one date and out. We at the top of the steps of um, the other younger siblings who kind of didn't think it was going to happy, happen. And lo and behold, to everyone's surprise, ours, including said daughter, came home late at night and said, mm, I had a nice time and went out a lot with said gentleman during that holiday season. And I'm pleased to say to that granddaughter that we are delighted that said daughter ended up marrying said gentleman. The gentleman, I might add, um, I think said daughter was the first girl he ever went out with and he was very wise and decided that he would follow her a week later a week later said gentleman and your father decided to go after and be sure that he stuck close to the girl of his dreams and so it's not true the line through, but it is true that I did not shop correctly and somebody else did. And I'm very grateful because that daughter and that gentleman being your parents are very, very happy with each other. <laughs> um, for, first of all, thank you for giving uh, your side of the story. Uh, we'll be sure to independently verify it with other sources later. <laughs> but uh, um, I just want to tell you that piece of paper, that infamous piece of paper that was or wasn't, I can't believe exists. But you know what? Um, I have a lot of the lists of the guys for my daughters still intact, even though many of them have been married for many, many, many years. So maybe that piece of paper will just kind of come up in my Pesach cleaning. 
<laughs> so again, de- thank you for sharing the story. Um, so w- one question I want to ask on that though, is that it kind of sounds from the story that there was this, there, there was this layer of tension between, between you and said daughter on this topic. And, you know, you were trying to get her to date with, with, within a certain window and she didn't want to, she kind of chose the least likely uh, candidate in order to, I mean, I hate to say it so harshly, but maybe poke you in the eye. So, so it kind of sounds that, you know, on the substrate of this story, there, there's some level of tension between, between your child and you as a parent. And, and maybe you wouldn't mind a Elaborating a little bit more about what are some of the potential tensions that could come out between a parent and a child around uh, the the phase or the time of life of marriage. Any involvement, you know, comes with uh, with different emotions. So any involvement, you know, you can abdicate. People abdicate and say that's um, I don't get involved in my child's um, dating life. I don't get in cho- I don't get involved. That you know, that's my child's decision. Uh, my child doesn't want me involved. When I hear parents say that, I think they're crazy. I mean, it's exactly when a kid needs you involved. You know, whether they're able to articulate it or not, or even whether they know it or not. So, with involvement comes you know, good days and bad days. Some you know, sometimes you overstep. Sometimes you don't overstep. But, you know, involvement is really, you know, I guess it's a choice. I don't even see it as a choice. I see it as part of the job description. So, yeah, so you're going to have ups and downs with a child, you know, just as you're battling or navigating is a better word, your way through these different stages of life. But it's part of the job part of the job of the kid and part of the job of the parent and and part of the interaction some days are you know smoother more seamless and some days are rockier and sometimes you know poking the eye in that case you meant it that way but sometimes you have to poke your kid a little bit to get them to a place that they feel that you can help them move on to um, the next level in a relationship Oma, you mentioned just now in the story about how when we were talking about, you know, said gentleman that 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 maybe you weren't shopping well enough and that and that you were looking for a particular item. But then, you know, in hindsight, you you it it seemed like you were doing the wrong shopping. Um, And and my next question is, is that is that growing up and sort of as you started phasing in uh, to your children getting married, did you have a certain vision in mind about how you wanted this this new chapter of your family to look like and what you wanted your in-law children to look like? Did you have a certain vision of how you thought um, that that should have looked. That's that's the first question, and then and then the second question I wanna I, I wanna ask on that is that do do you feel that you prioritized bringing in new strains and new breeds of of, of people with you know maybe different uh, sets of beliefs into the family as as the years went on? So I don't pretend to believe that I was in control, that the kind of control that you just described or asking me about that had anything to do with reality. I wasn't in control. I I was out there looking and out there, but control, absolutely, absolutely not. 
And, you know, we were looking for nice kids. I think maybe the only thing we didn't, we kind of were shying away from is we lived in um, Manhattan, in the city, and we were different, and we kind of were not unhappy. We were kind of happy with the fact that we were different than a lot of other people. And I was not necessarily looking for a city or what we perceived as that type for the kids. And nobody married that type, which means that um, whatever life we were living kind of uh, filtered down to the kids. So that might have been only like a feeling that we had that we weren't really interested in. And, and it bore, it kind of, you know, happened which we were grateful for. But control, absolutely not. Lucky, lucky, lucky de Siata Dishmaya. Oma, we talked a lot about about hindsight and being able to, to look back in time and to be able to dissect certain things that happened in the past. Um, how do you believe that you would have approached relationship decisions in your earlier years, uh, both your own relationship with Poppy and when it came to your children's relationships as they were formulating over time? Uh, how do you believe that you would have approached those relationship decisions knowing what you know today? That's like a really global question with a, lots of piecemeal kind of answers. So I know everybody has when they're dating those or as they're getting more serious in a relationship, there was big conversations. You know, how do you think we're going to be? What kind of parents do we want to be? What kind of life we're going to have? What's it going to look like? And then life happens. And gosh, you know, I guess, you know, you come back again to those core belief kind of things, but you... You know, you have you have a hope, and you take you take bits and pieces from the home you came from, and you certainly leave bits and pieces behind from the home you came from, and then you know they say the pendulum swings. You're like your grandparents because you want to be the opposite of your parents. So when they were the opposite of their parents, so you must be exactly like your grandparents. I'm not sure exactly if that's really true. However, um, I don't know. I think when you choose a spouse or a spouse chooses you or you decide that you're going to start your life together, you somehow feel that you can, well, I don't even know if you think about it if you're young, you know, you can work things out. I don't know if you think you can conquer the world or do you think that you can navigate, maybe that's a better way of saying it, navigate your way through the ups and downs, the ins and outs of life. So. Again, you have like a hope, a shifa, that that life is going to work out. But who knows what you get, what thrown your way on the way, and and how you um, have to maneuver, and and step around and step over and figure out through all kinds of um, I don't know if they're obstacles or circumstances of life. So. I don't know if that answered the question, but I don't think there is an answer to that question, or certainly not me, who might have one. Oh, my, you talked about, 
you talked about you talked about ops. Sorry, one second. Oma, you talked about obstacles, and maybe I guess sort of a follow up question on this would be: Could you maybe think of a certain relationship obstacle that you had Poppy had uh, experienced throughout your relationship, and maybe would want to share with it? Maybe not specifics, but sort of maybe a, a relationship hurdle that you had, and how how you over how you overcame that that hurdle between the two of you. I don't know if anything I would call a hurdle. We had challenges, like everybody has challenges. We had challenges in, you know, in in early marriage, you know, how you meld two different opinions or two different family backgrounds and kind of come up with your own way. You hobble through some situations, some situations you avoid, some situations you tackle head on. Um, then once you start having children, you have other challenges. Pregnancies, you have challenges. You know, you all know that I was sick a lot during pregnancies. You know, that doesn't, like, add great things to a marriage or a relationship early on, but you do what you do, and you hope that you have support, and it goes back to that unconditional love. And you have to hope that whatever partner you choose to go through life with will support you on on different levels, emotionally, physically, um, on so many levels and so many different times and different challenges. I'm not sure I'm answering these questions well, but somehow those are the answers that come to mind. So, you know, the, the word that everybody talks about or you kind of aspire to is that big word, compromise, whatever compromise means. Um, so don't laugh, but, so what's a compromise? A, a compromise, I can look it up in Google, but a compromise is that one come, party comes what part way and another party comes another way and then you kind of come to, you know, the spiel has a hav, which is not always a hav, that you kind of decide to go with. So now, how do we each individually define compromise? So compromise need my way or the highway, or compromise is I'll give in this time to your way. I'm not sure that pure compromise is how any of us, and I'm not going to use the word navigate, but meander our way through life or tiptoe through the tulips through life. And so Poppy will say, Daddy, that he wanted to be a rabbi, but I didn't want to be a Rebbitzin. Irony of irony, who's the Rebbitzin now? So would you call that a compromise 50 odd years later? You know, I had my way, then he had his way, and who's on the highway? So uh, I don't know. Um, but I guess um, merging two different backgrounds is kind of the ultimate compromise because you really have to talk about it. You talk about, you know, I think you instinctively do buy into something or don't, and then you have to talk it out. Like one side really wants, I don't know what, something, or thinks about a view. Oh, I do remember. I remember being at the Shabbat table in New York. We had a lot of company. And Daddy, Poppy, and I were on opposite sides of the table, the way we sit now. 
And he was talking about sending, I don't remember how old Michael even was, must have been in elementary school someplace. And Poppy was talking, Daddy was talking about that he was thought about sending um, his boys out of town, maybe to like Philadelphia. And I remember, I don't remember having a conversation about that, I told him. And I remember at the other side of the table saying, over my dead body. Now, we needed to come to a compromise after that, don't you think? So I think that what happens is people have views, people have perspectives, people have thoughts, and then you have to iron them out or iron them out of the conversation or iron them out between you. So, Omar, it sounds, it sounds what you're trying to describe to me is that uh, marriage isn't as much of a compromise or finding the middle road. It's rather each each side of the marriage or each spouse sort of at different times pulls the rope a little closer to their end. And then when you do the grand tally over the years, it's supposed to end up you know somewhere in the middle uh, as opposed to compromising every step of the way and sort of always always staying in the middle. And and my question on that is is do you think that maybe sometimes actually when you when you look back after over all, all those years maybe you'll come to the realization that someone pulled the rope a little more than the other spouse and and maybe that could create some sort of resentment or then just looking back over life you realize that that you let the other side pull the rope a little more than you would have wanted to so first of all i have a feeling i don't know how many about my grandchildren but a lot of my children are now either smirking or giggling because they are deciding who was pulling what rope which rope was around whose neck all good So the point is that um, at the balance, you know, you only get a mabata chora. You know, what is being older and wiser, whatever the heck that means? It's it's a hindsight, and hindsight is always 20-20. So it's totally not fair to judge by hindsight when you're at the beginning of the journey or in the middle of the journey. So... You know, my, my um, wise comments or my insights, they're, they're hindsight. And it's hard for me to go back and think. I try, and I think some of it I, I have. Some of them, some of the things that I thought, I thought, you know, in real time at that time. But probably a lot of what I'm saying is tweaked or or um, colored or uh, reframed maybe by hindsight. So I don't know how fair any of what I say is. Oma, you mentioned during the last episode that that children have jobs. They need to go to school. They need to, you know, do their homework, whatever. They, they, kids have jobs, and those jobs change over time. Um, and You hope part of those jobs are picking up their laundry from the floor. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't count on that one. Um, so my question is, what, what is, what is the job of a spouse in a marriage? And do you believe, or from your experience, do you think that those roles or those jobs change over the years? That's an interesting question. I think the job of a spouse of each side is to work on the marriage, to work for, um, to work for a sense of well-being, 
that the marriage has a certain sense of well-being and 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 fairness between the two of you so that you can or are enabled or empowered to to do stuff and to influence your children and to impact your family and to interact in a healthy kind of way that your children have something to model going forward. And I think in anyone who digs their heels in too much or doesn't know how, or deals the right, um, digs their heels in too much or isn't fair, I don't know why that word comes to mind, but doesn't pull their weight towards making the environment positive, I think that's what the job of every spouse is. And of course things change over time because every person is still an individual in a marriage and individuals change over time. Uh, It's sunnier, it's cloudier, um, good moods, sad moods, circumstances, and adapting and adjusting to that is really what can hold it together. And it's a tough job for, for both parts, for both parties. It's not a walk in the park. It's real work. And, um, you know, a single just ca- once came to me and said, oh, it's so hard to decide to get married. How do you do it? It's the biggest decision in your life, blah, blah, blah. I said, it's the biggest decision in your life in hindsight. You know, in, pro- in prospect, it's just, it's just another de- decision along the road of your job of making decisions, you know. You go to, you, you, you're a child, you do your homework, you go to school, you date, you find somebody, you marry them. But staying married is much, much harder than getting married because it requires a lot more work as you get older, as you adapt, as your needs change, as your feelings evolve, as circumstances you know, play more role, bigger roles. So my, you mentioned, and I, th- I think you mentioned this earlier on also about how, how a spouse is, what one of the jobs of the spouse is to give unconditional love and that enables you to do and it enables you to risk. Um, and my next question is, is that, do you think that the, um, that the, encouragement or that unconditional love that a spouse gives is the same as that as a parent gives to their child before they get married and are sent off. Uh, Do you believe that those are the same or if they differ and if they do differ, then how so? It's an interesting question and I never really thought about it that way. You know, go define unconditional love. Unconditional love is I love you. I don't always like what you do every day and I might not even like you every day but I love you. And that love supersedes my like or dislike, right? With a friend you like or you dislike and you can walk away. And I think that unconditional love keeps you there and enables the other person, be it a child, be it um, a spouse, and even um, a child to a parent. And when a child becomes an adult child, 
there's this unconditional love that you hope is goes up to the parents when they understand what that means more as an adult. And I think that allows all of us to get through tough times and to get through tough interactions, either with our children or with our spouse or with our parents. And you have to hope that if you have that as the underlying layer, it definitely helps get through lots of things. So there's another thing to think about. You know, when you're a young child with a parent, uh, you don't realize it as a young child, child, but you cleave unto your parents in a certain way, called total sharing, total everything. You're enmeshed in a way. And then as you go into young adulthood and early adulthood, you start separating from your parents, which is healthy, which is what you're supposed to do. And so I guess this might go to young marriages, to early marriages. So in that separating place, time, if you're able to cleave onto somebody else, your spouse, your partner, you go, you go into a safe place. There's like a, it's a safe haven, which enables you to develop further as an adult. So I guess that goes towards the early marriages part. And it makes sense, the, um, the, the journey goes from cleaving to separating to cleaving, to be able to individuate in a different kind of way. So Oma, you just talked about this process of, you know, you know cleaving onto a parent and then slowly separating and going into your next, you know, next relationship, and then cleaving onto someone else. And, you know, in this case, your spouse, um, and sort of like the next question on that, you know, as a parent kind of letting go of your child after they get married, uh, maybe you can elaborate a little on the topic of what, uh, parents' relationship with their child is like after their child leaves the house and, and gets married to someone else and starts you know, living their, their own life separated from you? I guess you have to hope that your child started the separating process. You know, the separating process starts in uh, early teens, you know, doesn't agree, uh, wants their own space, I don't know, all kinds of different things, keeps a secret, whatever separating is about in the early stages. And so you have to hope that your kid started separating. And then the difference is, I guess, when a kid leaves is it your relationship has to reflect the, um, the fact that they have a partner and you hope they're sharing. And, you know, really know exactly what is going on in that relationship. You know, you hope, you see, you watch, you look, but, you know, you don't exactly know. So it has to reflect that. I, I think it, 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 I don't think it's so, so, so different. I mean, a little bit you have to be, you have to reflect that, you have to be more cautious. I don't know if that's the right word, but I think you have to believe that you have built a very solid foundation of your relationship with your child. And whether the child is in your house or out of your house, you have built that, you have to hope, I hope, that we've built a strong enough relationship that it can weather that transition period and transitioning into um, the next stage of life. 
and we transition all the time. And we, we, we sow the seeds of unconditional love, of, of whatever that entails, some days more trust, some days less trust, some days more interest, some days less, sometimes, whatever, whatever goes into that unconditional love. And, um, and, and you hope that it, it, that can't be undone. And if you did not sow the seeds of that, those feelings, they don't get born when somebody just gets married and you remember you want that, those feelings and you forgot to invest in them. Bad. No, it was good. So, Oma, you talked about the importance. I'm a little unsure of myself. Yeah, that, that, that's what I'm trying to grill you a little more on it. So, Oma, you talked about the the importance of sowing the seeds or setting the foundations for that relationship. And if and if those foundations are strong, then they'll carry through even once your child, uh, you know, marries someone else and leaves the house. I hope so. <laughs> and. Uh, and my question is, is that, you know, ultimately at the end of the day, the, the nature of the relationship just just ends up changing just because they're they're creating their own nuclear family. They don't live at home anymore. They're, there's there's a very important figure in their life that's not their parent. So my next question is, is that how do you feel that your relationship with your children differs um, once they left the house in the sense of, you know, what, what, what makes it harder at the end of the day to be able to maintain that relationship once they're not there with you? You want your kids to do all those things. That's called healthy. That calls, it's called growing up. So you really want them to leave, to cleave onto somebody else, to start building a relationship. So, and 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 you want to you want them to know that the partner that they chose looks like a really great choice for them and you don't know that at the beginning but as you watch you and and you see it blossoming you also let your kids know that you're happy with their choice and that it was a good choice and then you have to work at building a relationship with with uh, the new member of our family as well. And Daddy, Poppy, and I have tried. I don't know if we always succeeded, but um, but we certainly have tried to invest in, include, because we love our, our in-law children, and we love the children that our grandchildren are bringing into the family. And it only enhances us as a tribe. And I think maybe that's what you... No, we don't look at anybody as pulling us apart. And maybe if you don't believe anybody's looking to pull you apart, they don't. Because they're not threatened um, by, you know, by you need to pull apart. So, you know, everybody's entitled to... You know, we hope kids like to come and we hope kids like to be a part, you know, the various different generations. You can't force it. You can encourage it. You can enable it. You can make it nice. But children, grandchildren, great-children, great-grandchildren, they can say no thanks. You're not in charge of the no thanks. You have to hope, you know, and you like it, but no thanks is definitely a response. So, my, you just... 
talked about how it's actually important to let go and it's important to you know encourage your child to leave the nest and to create that relationship with with their spouse and that you know those are all positive things and 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 you're you're looking to do that um and maybe without naming names uh maybe you would want to you know share maybe some experiences you've had observing over the years of maybe parents who uh who were maybe a little too clingy to their children and how that might have affected the child or you know the in-law child that they ended up onboarding either somebody told me or i read someplace or i heard someplace i don't exactly remember but it was a very um, powerful uh, statement, and and I I really um, uh, was mafnimit. I really integrated it. Um, that separating is a two-way process. A kid separates from you, and you have to let go and separate from them. A child can't separate unless you let go. And we all know of cases that of parents not being able to let go and the separating has to be ends up being angrier more violent um, fraught with more complication and so if if you see the journey of life as stages um, setting your child not free but but letting go little bits at a time. You let go when a kid is three, or you let go again when a kid is six, and then you let go when you let them go to the bus stop by themselves, and then you let go again when they come home by themselves or a little bit too late and you get nervous, but you bite your nails quietly. And you let go, you keep letting go. You let go when there are friends you do or don't like, and you kind of hope that they already have that power to discern. And then you let go again, you keep, inching away to allow a child to stand on their own feet so and you're proud of them you're incredibly proud of a child each step away uh, of the way of their separating in a kind of healthy way you define healthy as your way but healthy kind of modeling the um the characteristics or the traits or the uh, strengths or the skills from the tools that you gave them so that's really healthy. And those parents around that I've seen, and I'm sure we've all seen, who didn't let go, either all along the way, too protective, I don't even know what the right word is, um, didn't, didn't do themselves a, a, a service. Maybe they thought they loved better than everybody else or more, they were more protective, they cared more. I don't know exactly what they thought but they didn't do themselves or their child a service because the child has to fight to separate, which is a normal process, and and they end up being hurt because the rip, it's like ripping off a Band-Aid instead of taking it off a little bit at a time in a, in a healthier fashion. It almost sounds like letting go, it's kind of like muscle memory. You have to, you know, do it, you know, year over year. Um, would you say that letting go is an intuitive instinct as a parent or actually a counterintuitive instinct as a parent? You know, it's so hard to answer that because, you know, you say some parents are just in, 
intuitively good parents. And then you look at others and you say, some parents just, you don't get it. You know, where didn't, didn't they go to parent school or didn't they just like, what is that about? So I don't know if it's intuitive or, or counterintuitive. I think you hope that, that I don't know, maybe it was my, it's my way of viewing it, but I think it makes sense. And, you know, I wish for my children, you know, this is all about my kids, this whole podcast and this whole, and my view of life, you all know that. So, you know, people come to me to ask me something, I'm happy to give them an answer, but my investment is in my kids and my grandchildren. So I think that you guys have all seen it and lived it and have integrated it. And I believe at this point, these are, this is intuitive to all of you. And whether they're skills or you came with those tools or you've seen them. And, and I hope that it's intuitive and not counterintuitive to all of you. Oh, I mentioned briefly um, about sort of the, you know, the, the, the practice of, you know, giving your children the confidence that they brought, you know, the right spouse back into the house. Um, I had mentioned earlier before on this podcast that you have seven children, but I don't think I mentioned that there's an 18 year gap between the oldest child and the youngest child. So, you know, just roughly speaking, the amount of time that passed from the moment your first in-law child joined the family until the last in-law child joined the family is roughly about 20 years uh, between when your first child got married as opposed to when your youngest uh, child got married. So my question is, is that do you think um, that sort of some of the onboarding experience that you gave some of the older in-law children was different than that of uh, the younger in-law children that joined the families, the family in later years? Honestly, I don't know. Um, I think back, um, I, I don't think I consciously changed from one to the other. I mean, there were circumstances. Um, Michael and Yaffa moved to Israel like within a few months of getting married, too, I think. So there was a, you know, there was a remote quality to it. Um, Daphne and Mike, uh, Daphne and Daniel, the bottom of, you know, the last one moved to a lot um, right after Sheva Brachot or during Sheva Brachot. So I don't know if distance makes a difference. I don't know. I may not, you know, if you measure it item by item on an item line, maybe there were different things done, but I don't think in terms of feelings, I can't recall that I felt differently. Tried to help where we could, tried to be there where we could. I, I, I can't think, nothing's coming to mind that it was different. Were we older? Yeah, with each successive kid, were there less kids in the house? With that pull or timing? Yes. Um, we changed countries in the middle of all that. So we were in Israel when some of the kids married were in the States and some kids were here. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I May, didn't answer the question. No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to prompt you. So, oh, maybe I'll try to to approach this question from, uh, um, you know, 
from a different flank. Um, you, so again, seven children, all of them are married. The spouses of all of your children are not cookie cutter versions, well, you know, one of the other. I think that if you kind of, you know, put, put a map out of all the different in-law children that you have, uh, you'd have a pretty widespread. So do you think that, you know, child-in-law A, who comes from a very typical background, whether that be Israel or the United States or you know, comes from different family backgrounds, from different, you know, belief systems, I don't know. Um, Do you think that, you know, child-in-law A's experience of joining the family or experiencing you as in-law parents was entirely identical to that of child-in-law B? My assumption is no, but I'm I'm curious to hear from your perspective uh, how you think that maybe those experiences would have differed from one another. Clearly, I'm sure they're different, but I can't get into the head of my in-law children to know how traumatic it was coming into our family. I only know that we really only knew one stance. We knew how to be us. So I think with slight variations here and there, we kind of had the same approach with each one of onboarding, if you want to use the term, um, our uh, the spouses of our children, where each of their reactions to our personalities, our style, our approach, different. Did some of them, you know, have more not an approach avoidance, more of an avoidance, as less of an approach, or more of an approach and less of an avoidance? Could be, could be, but. But, you know, I guess if we saw something, we tried to adapt to it. But if not, we kind of uh, barreled ahead and hoped that whoever it is would see it as a positive approach and not a negative one. So maybe maybe I'll sort of try this question. I'm not getting to the answer. <laughs> no, no, no. It's I, I clearly, if I'm understanding what you're saying in the right way, is that is that looking back, you're you're sure that the experience is different from one another, but j- just conceptually, overall, how you tried to approach each and every experience, it you you tried to remain consistent in that in that form and and adapting to each situation, as we said. Um, the, I don't know that we tried to be consistent. I think we were or are who we are. So, you know, that's our style. And some got used to it faster. Some haven't gotten used to it or don't want to get used to it. Um, And some took time to understand that uh, that's who we are and that's our style. So, Oma, you were you were talking just we were discussing a little bit right now about the the inclusion of of in law children from the perspective of you know of the parents. Um, I'd maybe like to get uh, your insight from a different perspective this time, and that is that what do you think can maybe be some of the hardships of younger siblings seeing their older siblings, uh, you know, bringing, you know, first it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend home, and then ultimately they end up getting married. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of the hardships of young siblings seeing their older siblings going through that, and maybe what the role of a parent is in order to try and normalize that effect. 
I'm not sure what you're getting at. I think if you would ask my younger siblings, the only thing they got cranky about is having to babysit for some of their older siblings' kids when they thought they could be young and carefree. Um, what's the impact on younger kids watching the older kids? I think they look at it if they're young, if they're significantly younger, and they're just watching a good movie, you know, and it doesn't impact them. It's just part of what's going on. I think that goes to the same thing about the journey or the stages. A younger kid is not at that stage. If they're still at the um, the younger stage and, you know, doing what they're supposed to be doing, so the older sibling is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Does it impact because they're watching and everybody's getting ready for a date or not getting ready for a date or thinking of dates or I don't know what? Maybe. But I don't think I was mitjaches to it that way. I just think it just was. Didn't answer your question, did I? I'm going to try to prompt you to see, Omar. What I'm what I'm trying to get at, and and maybe maybe it's just a wrong question, but I would assume that that if you're call it a um, you know a middle-ish child in the family, so you're not too young, you know, and you're just kind of like sitting with a bag of popcorn, seeing your you know your older sibling move on, uh, but you're also um, you know you're also not too old to be in their stage of life. I would think, or I would assume that it would be, it would, you know, it'd be a little hard to see your older sibling, you know, bring someone new into the house, and then to kind of see them uh, move a little further away, and to and to be with that person. So, so what I'm trying to get at is that maybe, maybe there is some hardships for some of those middle children when when they see that. Thank God, I got you to think something. I think maybe what you're talking about is do younger kids feel abandoned by their um, siblings as they leave? And, you know, maybe. Um, Youngest kids for sure, you know, you go off and have a real life and you're leaving me with these crazy parents? What have you done to me? So uh, I'm sure that happens in every family, but that's normal. And then they get a little more attention, and they get, it just, it just is. There is a challenge to being at every which place in a family. The oldest will say, oh, I had to be, everything got tried on me. The middle will say, oh, I'm the middle child. I got it coming both ways. The youngest will say, oh, I was abandoned. Ah, but I got an extra treat. Or you didn't. It just, you know, the, the, the goral of life, where you end up being in a family. And if a parent doesn't make it a drama and say that this is normal and your time will come and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you can't take away kids' feelings. You have to deal with them. But abandon is a big word. And I'm not sure they could feel abandoned, but I don't know that I would reinforce that feeling of abandonment. I would make it like funny or, you know, it just is what it is. Listen, you know, every change in a family, meaning every new addition to a family, then you can't have any children because then you'll have no change. Everything will be perfect. Just you and whoever you, you know, decide to share your life with and won't be any challenges, you know, other than not having kids. So with every kid you have, you add an extra 
layer of personality, characteristic, circumstance, challenges, um, um, life changes to the mix. So with every addition of every member into the family comes their personality, their expectation the new alliances that are recreated every time another person comes into the family, creating a new dynamic, creating more of a tightrope, I guess, for a parent to kind of navigate their way through. And, and, and many times, you know, it comes with challenges. Sometimes as a parent, you, you, you manage and sometimes you manage less well. Sometimes it's a combination of um, challenges, expectations, alliances, dynamic, circumstances, and all that together sometimes works out better at a particular time, and sometimes it works out less well. And you have to hope that everybody, whether you as a parent, manage something well or don't didn't manage something well or do manage something well um, that you know moving past is 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 a quality now you know there's that whole thing about forgetting forgiving and forgetting when do you forgive when do you forget what does it mean to forgive or forget so there are some ills that you forgive and there's sometimes you don't forgive, but it's in your best interest to forget. And, and it's an interesting concept. Like if somebody does something to you that's really terrible, uh, so it's not forgivable. But if you want to continue having a relationship, you have to park it someplace. You have to find a drawer and park it there. And that is what I would call forgetting. And so that you can move on. And those people who can neither forgive or forget get stuck in life. And it ain't a good thing. And so my recommendation is sometimes forgive and sometimes forget, whichever works best in the situation. And again, just so Oma, just going back to my original question, and, and I thank you for elaborating on that a little more, but maybe you can drill down a little deeper on what is the role of a parent and a parent-in-law in navigating these new family dynamics and the complexities that are born of the fact that you end up having these new family dynamics. Honestly, doing the best you can, which I said a while ago, you do the best you can. You, you learn the hard way, you can't fix everything. And you do the best you can at that particular time with the tools you have and the situation and circumstances you find yourself in. And sometimes you do better and sometimes you don't do as well. And you can do al hate a million times if you don't think you did well. And you can feel badly and you can feel sad and you can feel guilty. Do you take that guilt with you for the rest of your life? I don't know. You honestly, honestly did the best you can. If you did, do the best you could. And maybe your best really wasn't good enough. And maybe your best isn't good enough. But, but that's your best. If you know that you did your best, even if you messed up, it, it what? If, if you kind of know you didn't do your best and you really didn't try and you didn't really think about it, and you just kind of punted, ah, 
So that's maybe not fab. But sometimes that happens too. And so you either stagnate and stay at one place as a parent and say, oh my God, I messed up. I'm not going to trust myself ever again to do anything else because I messed that up. And how can I trust myself and I'm going to mess up again and again? Or you say, I messed up. My intent was good. My instincts, I think, are okay. I'm not going to be strangled or, or, or stopped in my track um, by something that maybe I did not do better, good enough, and you keep moving on. And parenting is trial by error. Sometimes we make it right, and sometimes we don't, and sometimes gets better, and maybe sometimes it doesn't. But we honestly do the best we can. And that's a message that I have for my kids. And opting to not have any children or only have that one perfect child, don't think that you can outfox the fox. It doesn't work that way. You know, it's a little bit, in part, what when we talked about compromising, nobody completely wins. But uh, Poppy Daddy used to say in law that the best compromise is when neither party is really happy, and that they only each one gave a little bit more than they wanted to give. And I guess maybe that's how you try to do it as a parent. But it doesn't. It doesn't work. You're not judge and jury, and so you can't get it right. You just really back again to do the best you can. Oh, Matt, just like we did in the last episode, last question of, uh, um, of, of this topic, and that is that um, if you can choose one piece of advice that you could give your children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren on navigating the years of your children's marriage and the inclusion of, in, of in-law children, what would it be? Be yourself. Because it's really tough to be somebody else and, and, you know, to use today's word, authentic. Not authentic doesn't really work. And, and your child knows the real you anyway. And, and try to be inclusive and easy and not push too hard and, uh, and hope for the best. And hope that that new child wants to join the gang. And, and, and trust yourself, again, that your instincts are good and you're good at bringing people in and, and making it a fun place to be or trying. You know your children and, and you love them and you trust them. So uh, support their decision and their choice and supporting their decision and their choice even if you're not sure sometimes is bringing um, the new child into the fold and you want to do that as best you can with as open arms as you can and um, as seamlessly as you can Oma, thank you very, very much. A pleasure as usual. Again, just going back to the ground rules, like we were saying, uh, this is a three-part podcast. First part was about parenting. The second part that we just concluded was on the marriage phase. Uh, And the next part is going to be about grandparenting. And like I mentioned in the beginning, these are all family-sourced questions, which means that um, you're 
grandchildren are going to be able to ask in the next episode uh, everything that they wanted to know about how you went about your grandparenting, the same way that this episode, um, the family source questions were from your children and your in-law children. And again, thank you very much for your time and your insight, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.